Can we stand together and let's just pray? We're gonna, that's a great graphic that Laura came up with, Living for God. And let's just sing through one more time, Joe. We give him all the glory. And let's just lift it up to him and ask God to bless we this word. give you all the for the Word of God. We want to know about you so we can walk with you. And we know that, Lord, the truth will truly set us free. And we know that thy Word is truth. So, Lord, we ask you tonight, open our eyes, open our ears, open our understanding that the light of your Word would shine in and renew our minds and help us to know more how to live for God. And you just breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. Speak to my heart. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight and you can sit down. God bless you. And how many of you, I'm going to now tell the truth in church. How many of you read 1 Peter 4? Oh, give each other a hand. That's great. Good deal. Now I know what I'm going to have. I'm going to have armchair critics. I'm going to have backdoor or backseat drivers who are going to say, that's not what I got out of it. It's okay for you to be wrong. I, really, it's okay. I'm kidding. Let me, uh, let me I, and I chose 1 Peter 4 because it's, it really does encapsulate many important things about walking with God. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I go on with God, the more I want to know about Him the more I want to understand him, and the more I want to walk with him, the closer I want to walk with him. I want to learn to practice the presence of God, and I want to learn to just experience that sense of his presence all the time. I want to please him. How many of you want to please him? Amen? So let's dig into 1 Peter 4, and I want you to read the first six verses with me out loud because that's the ones we're dealing with tonight, and it's powerful stuff. So talk to me as we read, okay? Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Turn to your neighbor and say, do you do any of that stuff? That sounded like a good Friday night for some people right there, but let's go on. Now, look what Peter says in verse 4. In regard to these... They think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. In verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, 
the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Now, this, is, this verse is considered by some to be the toughest verse in the New Testament. This one right here. Look at what he's saying. What in the world is he saying? For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. What does that mean? Hopefully we can crack the hardest verse in the New Testament tonight. All right? Now, let's dig in. 1 Peter chapter 4. In chapter 4, Peter makes, you'll notice when you read it, read it many, many times, he makes three statements or three inspired key thoughts. And who was his inspiration? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it's God-breathed. It says, who moved on holy men of old? The Holy Spirit moved on holy, holy men of old in times gone by. And so what they penned was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired, breathed out by God. So he makes three breathed out by God key thoughts that serve as a springboard for several life-changing insights. Now, here's the key statements. The first one we're going to deal with tonight. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, what do you do with that? We can almost put after these three things, how then shall we live? In light of these three statements, how then shall we live? Since Christ suffered in the flesh, how then shall we live? The end of all things is at hand, we're going to deal with next week. How then do we live in light of that? And the third one, think it not strange. When you go through a lot of fire, a lot of trials, think it not strange. How then shall we live in light of those things? All right, so let's look at the first statement tonight. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, what does that mean? How did Jesus, besides the cross, suffer for us in the flesh? Since Jesus did suffer, how then should we respond and apply that fact to our lives? Because when you see a therefore, notice verse 1 starts with therefore, then something came in front of it. So you need, when you see therefore, you need to see what it's there for. It's, it's a connective, because in the, original, in the original text, there were no chapters. The chapter divisions are man-made. Okay? So, therefore, he's carrying a thought forward. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for us? All right, so how do you apply that to our life? First, he says, since he suffered in the flesh, you are to arm yourself with the same exact mind. Arm yourself. Well, what does the word arm mean? Arm yourself. It means make ready to equip. Picture loading a gun or picture putting an arrow in a quiver. Or not in a quiver, but in a bow. Picture, picture getting a bow ready to fire, a gun ready to shoot, putting a rock in a slingshot. You are preparing or equipping yourself for something. It's the only time in the whole New Testament this Greek word is used, arm. It's the only time. In other words, he's saying, since Jesus suffered in the flesh, you be ready 
and prepare yourself to suffer in the flesh. Now, this is not a jump up and shout and say, amen, I name that and claim that one. Because who wants to suffer? We don't like the, the, that word, do we? But you know what? Some suffering works great glory in your life. Some suffering's bad suffering. But some suffering, the kind he's talking about here, brings about great glory. The suffering he's speaking of has to do with saying no to the demands of your own will. Saying no to the desires of your flesh when they run contrary to God's will. Now, when I use the word flesh or when he used the word flesh, he's not talking about your body because your body is good. And you should never think that your body is bad. The flesh is talking about the fallen nature. It's not talking about your body. God made your body and said it is good. But that fallen nature, the flesh, is what gets you in all that trouble. All right? So when you say no to the desires of that fallen nature that wants to go against the will of God, that's the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. When you say no, when you should say no. It is found in Jesus' words. Then he said to the crowd, Jesus did, quote, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn away from what, everybody? Your selfish ways. Now, there's things that you want to do that are good. It's not that everything you want to do is bad. But when it comes from the flesh, that fallen nature that runs contrary to the will of God, then that's when you turn from your selfish, self-centered, self-focused ways. You take up your cross daily, and you follow me. And Jesus said, if you don't take up the cross daily and follow him, guess what? You're not going to follow him for long. Because where Jesus is going to take you, you can't take your fleshly ways. There has to be a crucifixion. Crucifixion is never a pleasant thing as it's happening, but when the flesh is crucified, that's when you really begin to live. Paul said, I die once a year. Is that what he said? He said, I die every single day. I die daily. Well, that doesn't sound like a very glamorous life to me. But guess what? He was experiencing the full life of the Holy Spirit because he was dying to that fallen nature, that flesh that wants to pull you away from the will of God. He was dying to that so that he could live. And so this is what Jesus said about those that want to follow him. Peter tells us that the way we learn to do this, die to the flesh, is by having the same mind that was in Jesus Christ. The same mind. Well, what mind? was in Jesus Christ. It's found in Luke 22, 41 to 43. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's about to be crucified. He knows that the whole reason he was born, to die for the sins of mankind, is about to take place, but he's not relishing it. And I'm going to tell you why. I really don't believe that Jesus was, was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood out of fear of being nailed to the tree. I believe he was dreading a first-time in all of eternity, a first-time temporary separation from the Father. You and I, we're used to having a shadow pass between us and God, and we have to repent and get right and restore a relationship. Get this now, Jesus never had to restore a relationship. Here's another thought. He never had to repent. 
because he never sinned. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And now he knows he's going to the cross. And what's going to happen on the cross? He's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity past, God the Son is going to experience separation from God the Father. And it made him dread it. So, here he is. He walked away about a stone's throw, left the disciples sitting there, walked away, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, and not whose? Not mine. That's the mind Peter's talking about. Have this mind. You've got to have the same mind. What was the mind? Not mine, but yours. Try that on for size in any 24-hour period. Because you know what we are? From the time that we can, we can move or enunciate or blabber or blubber or anything, we're wanting our own. Give me, give me, give me. But you know what? It reaches a place in your spiritual maturity. You've got to come to this place Jesus did. If you're ever going to be spiritually mature, it's going to come to this. And God will take you through lots of things to bring you to this place of, of surrender. Notice that it, it was after he said, not my will but yours be done, that the angel appeared and strengthened him. And you will find that it's when you surrender, it's when you get to a place of total surrender, not my will but yours be done, that's when you begin to experience spiritual breakthroughs in your life. Okay? It was at this moment the angel appeared and gave him strength when he didn't have any on his own. And he went to the cross, and he paid the price for you and for me. And no one else ever did that, and there is no other way to have the sin issue dealt with than the Lamb of God right here. Being armed to suffer in the flesh is referring to being prepared for those moments when we must choose God's will over our own wants, our own will, our own selfish needs. And you know what? The choice to pick up your cross is presented many times each and every day, isn't it? Each and every day in a hundred different ways, you have the option of saying, not my will but yours be done, or it's going to be my way or the highway. And God will eventually break you down and break that strong will and bring you to the place where you can surrender. Surrender is the place of freedom and peace. It's as long as you fight God that life for a Christian is miserable. Well, I didn't know a Christian life could be miserable. Oh, yes. Christianity can make you so very miserable. If you don't want to give up the ways of the flesh and you're going to become a Christian, you're going to be fighting God the rest of your life. And I'm going to tell you who wins that fight. He's bigger than you, stronger than you, wiser than you. I mean, you might as well... You might as well try to put out the sun with a squirt gun than win in a battle with God. Now, Peter continues, For he who has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. He who has learned to say, not my will but yours be done, something happens with sin cycles in your life. Now I want to clarify this. This is really important because a lot of people get this wrong. This does not mean that we become sinless. That's not what he's saying. Because we'll never be sinless until we go to heaven. It means that we are no longer ruled by sin. And John addressed this, and, and John is often misunderstood. Uh, the Amplified Bible puts it this way, by the way. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, having the mind of Christ, is done with intentional sin, has stopped pleasing himself and the world, and lives to please God. Powerful. Now, as I was mentioning, the same thought, and it is often misinterpreted, a lot of people come under condemnation reading 1 John. Because in 1 John, for instance, 3 verse 6, John says this, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Well, people read that and they go, Uh-oh, well, I must not be saved. Because I know that I still sin. Anybody in here never sin? All of you who have sinned so far in the year 2010, let me see your hand. The rest of you, you just sinned. You just lied to me. Well, what does he mean? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one, he goes on, no one continues to sin, or no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Uh-oh. Well, then, where am I spiritually? The Greek matters here. And I know it's Greek to you. I won't say Greek words, but here's, here's what the verb tense here really matters. What it means is he who is still living in a habitual, sinful, unrepented of lifestyle has not known him. John and Peter both are addressing the person who continues living out a sinful lifestyle, not the person who occasionally sins and repents. You tell me you come to know Jesus, but there's no change in your life. I can tell you by the word, you haven't come to know Jesus. Well, who are you to judge me? I don't judge you. The word judges you. If you say you know Jesus, you're going to have a changed life. Now, I'm not saying it'll be, you know, night to day and A to Z immediately, but there's going to be change instantly if you really know Jesus because he gave you a brand new nature, and it's going to show it's got to show. It will show. But boy, there's people filling our churches all over America who think that because they're in a building, they're saved. No more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. You are saved by the blood, and he gives you a brand new nature. And when you get that brand new nature, it's going to show. People around you are going to begin to see little differences. Maybe super dramatic, maybe gradual, but it's going to come. Now, once we die to ourselves by choosing God's will over our own, we cease living in intentional sin to please ourselves and the world. And the more you grow spiritually, the more mature you become, the less you live for you, and the more you live for Him. There is a difference between a carnal Christian and a biblical Christian. A carnal Christian is a cultural Christian. Their minds are being shaped by the culture. A biblical Christian is having his mind or her mind renewed day by day, and they're growing in grace. 
What makes the difference is what you know and what you understand. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But if you're not being taught the truth or ever reading the truth, ever reading your Bible, you're not going to change. You will know the truth progressively over time. You'll know the truth more and more and that truth will make you free. And freer and freer and freer. Instead, we begin living for God's will. That's, that's the intention of God for every born-again child of His. He doesn't want you living for the lusts of men, but He wants you living for the will of God. And Peter makes a difference. He talks about the will of the Gentiles and the will of God. He said, you used to live by the will of the Gentiles. Look what God says in verse 2. Here's my will for you, that you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men. Now, I want you to say with me, that's God's will. That's what He's after every day of your Christian life. What is He after? That you no longer would live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men. But you would live for the will of God. Let me tell you something. Life goes fast. It starts zipping by in years and decades and before you know it, you were a teenager, and you're way, 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 way away from that now. And you look back and you go, how did all this happen so fast? See, look, you've got a short time on this earth to make the switch from living for the lusts of men to living for the will of God. You wake up one day, and most of your life is gone. And you go, what a tragedy. I've lived it for the lusts of men. The devil wants to get you in that cycle where you are feeding the flesh, living for the flesh, serving the flesh, and every day that goes by, you're missing the chance to live for the will of God. And you've got to come to that point of surrender that Jesus did. Not my will. In any matter, but your will be done. And when you do that, you cease living for the lusts of men. And you start living for the will of God. All right. It's a defining moment in the life of every believer when total surrender takes place. And we live the rest of our time for the will of God rather than for the lust of men. And everyone in here, at the end of your life, you will have lived either for the lust of the flesh or the will of God. You want to be able to say with Paul, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I won the race. Your course is the will of God. He next says that we can't reach the place of total surrender fast enough. You can't get there fast enough. If you haven't gotten to the place of living for the will of God yet, do it tonight, and it's still not fast enough. Look what he says. For we have spent enough time. I can hear him saying enough is enough. We've spent enough time in our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles and here's the will of the Gentiles. This is the way all, all of us at one point or another, one level or another used to live. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I want to show you what some of these things mean. Uh, now, lewdness. The King James Version says lasciviousness. There's a $10 theological word for you, but it simply means to cast off restraint. Now, when I read these things, think about our culture for a minute. Look out there at what you see on the news, 
at the way our government's going, the way our whole culture is moving and sliding down to this real, this level, lascivious, lewd, uh, casting off restraint. Don't want restraint anymore. It points to those who throw self-control to the wind and they live to fully indulge in the lust of the flesh. Their motto is, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. So go for the gusto, do what you want, live the way you want to. It doesn't matter to anybody. You do your thing, I'll do mine. If we happen to meet in the middle, it's beautiful, which is one of the dumbest sayings to ever emerge from the 60s. You do your thing, I'll do mine. If we happen to meet, it's beautiful. You know what happens when you do your thing and I do mine? We fight. We don't meet in the middle and it's beautiful. <laughs> That's true, right? Now, it, it, it means shameless conduct. Look what's happening out there that they're calling good, acceptable, normal. Look at it. And tell me if it's not instead lascivious and lewd and shameless conduct. Then he says lust. Lust means strong desire of any kind. Epithumia is the Greek word. Um, it almost always has a bad sense in Scripture. Pointing to the strong desires of the fallen Adamic nature of the flesh. Often used in the phrase lust of the flesh. Lust. Strong desire towards that which is against God. Strong desire towards that which is sinful. Strong, overpowering lust. You're either going to live for that or you're going to live for the will of God. Drunkenness. Well, we know what that is. This is no, don't need a definition. It's excessive wine. And you know what I say about this. I'll say it again. You can chew the meat and spit out the bones. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't drink. I don't drink anything. I don't touch alcohol. Not a drop. I've had seasons in my life when I did, and it was a series of terrible decisions. I don't touch it. Um, with every sip you take, you lose your ability to make a wise decision. I, th I think. Now, you say, well, you know, it's a free society. I can do it. You can. The Bible doesn't tell you you can't have any alcohol at all but if you look at the overwhelming testimony of scripture on alcohol it is it it leans towards advising learn to be filled with the spirit i'm not trying to cast condiment if you go out and you drink wine, that's that's between you and god i'm giving you my uh, my personal wisdom my counsel on this how many teenagers how many adults how many lives have been ruined, destroyed, killed by alcohol? How many bad decisions are being made right now because somebody's under the influence? Listen, I need to be alert and watchful. I don't need something that's going to dope me up, stupor me up, take away my ability to make a wise spiritual choice. That's free. Let's move on. Then he talks about revelings. That means to riot. Now, this is somebody's defi uh, commentator's definition. A nocturnal, that's nighttime, and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity. 
and sing and play before houses of male and female friends. Hence, use generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. Let me tell you something. No good thing happens after midnight. And if you want to trip with the chances of no good thing happening, include alcohol. Kathy and I coming home. <laughs> we were driving home today. We passed this liquor store. And they, they speckle the highway. They line the highway, this liquor store, and um, these liquor stores. And here's one. And, and their advertisement was that the big semis, that their, their little portico share where you drove in and bought it from the window, uh, was tall enough for semis to fit in. And we thought, oh, that just gives me a warm fuzzy. They go through there, and they get a bunch of alcohol, and then they get back on the highway. Oh, boy. Hallelujah. All right, then banquetings. Banquetings is talking about drinking parties, about with drinking. I, I listen a lot when I go out. I, I, like I, when I go to my bike store, I, and I hope none of them are listening, but I go to my little bike store where I got my bicycle, my cycle, my, not motorcycle, my cycle, pedaling. I pedal. And it's a bunch of, it's a real motley crew in there most of the time. And I just sit back and I listen. And all they talk about is their next party. That's all they talk about. Well, who's bringing the beer? Who's bringing the wine? Who's bringing this and that and the other? And, and it's like, that's, ex I had to think of this verse. You're going to live for the lusts of men, or you're going to live for the will of God. And they're, all, they're talking about, who's going to bring the stuff? And they're, they're looking forward to that next party, that next bout with drinking or drugs, whatever. But it's never, let's meet and just talk. Can't remember what was said the night before. Don't remember where I was. But it was a blast, man. We had a great time. <laughs> Where'd you wake up? Oh, man, I woke up, didn't know where I was. But, man, we had fun the night before. I don't want to wake up that way. That's going to freak me out. Okay? But this is, this is the will of the Gentiles. Do you see? And a drinking party, bout with drinking. Now, abominable uh, idolatries is easy, unlawful worship of idols. Unlawful worship of idols. Now, Peter's telling us that it's high time to totally disconnect from these things in order to serve the living God. You're going to live for the lusts of men or are you going to live for the will of God? You're going to have live for the will of the Gentiles or are you going to live for the will of God? Now, something happens. What is often the response of your party buddies when you get religion and you start checking out of all this? I remember what happened to me. I was with a friend, and I came out of the drug culture. I got saved in juvenile home for sale of narcotics when I was 16 years old. I was sitting in juvenile home, and the judge had said, I'm going to see to it that you go to prison sale of narcotics. I was terrified. When I was 16, lost as a goose in a hailstorm. I did not know anything about it. I was raised in paganism. Some of you, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, I was pagan. I came out of the church of the pagans, and we live for the will of the Gentiles. So I get saved, and 
I came to know Jesus sitting in the juvenile home. And when I got out, all my friends, hey, good to have you back. I said, listen, something happened to me in there. Well, what's that? Well, I became a Christian. I came to know Jesus. They said, what? I said, I came to know Jesus. Jesus? Are you a Jesus freak now? I said, well, I guess so. And, and so I was in a car with one of them, and he lit up a joint. And he blew it right in my face. And he said, you'll be back. Now let me tell you something sobering. I buried him five years ago. Because he went and lived his life out for the will of the Gentiles. I went and did my best to live for the will of God. And the will of the Gentiles killed him. The will of God saved my life. And that's the difference. But, but boy, did they mock me and make fun of me. Look what Peter says. In regard to these, these what you're doing, your break from all this, they think it's weird, strange, odd that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they speak evil of you. How many of you experienced that? Come on. And how many of you are afraid to say anything about Jesus at work because that's what's going to happen to you if you do? It's really going to happen. Now, but you're going to have to make a break. And I tell people this, there's no way you're ever going to live for the will of God until you make a break from those old friendships. I'm not saying be stuffy or elitist or holier than thou. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you can't run with them. Look what it says. They think it's strange you're not running with them. That doesn't say you don't talk to them every once in a while. That doesn't say you're not witnessing to them. They think it's strange you're not running with them, which means doing the same things they do. They think it's weird. What's happened to you, dude? You don't have fun anymore. Come on, lighten up. They think it's weird. Now, speaking evil of you is not as mild as it may sound. They sit back and they wonder what's happened to you. They don't get it. After all, isn't partying hardy what life is all about? It is if you're living for the will of the Gentiles. Because of your lifestyle change, your former friends, in quotes, begin to speak evil of you. This phrase is taken from the word blasphemy. Blasphemia is the word, and they aren't just making a few jokes at your expense. It gets way more serious than that. They're slandering you. It can get down where they're profaning your name. This is the treatment of fallen world. Divvies out to those that defect to the camp of the godly. If you're really walking in uh, that will of the Gentile, and you, the, your crowd is a will of the Gentile crowd, and all of a sudden you get saved and you, you get religion and you make a break and you start walking with God, they do not bless you in your endeavor. No, they start saying things about you, making fun of you, mocking you. Depending on the level of wickedness that was among them, they can really... Peter wrote this because in his day they were killing them. This was the days of Nero. This was the days of red-hot persecution. When he wrote this, Nero was lighting Christians on fire on stakes to light up his garden. I'm serious. 
He had them covered in pitch and lit them on fire. He was in this time. If you name the name of Christ, you are risking your very life, your livelihood, your family, your children, everything. And when you made the break from the will of the Gentiles and started living for the will of God, you had a big target on your chest. And it may actually cost you your life. And a lot of the people that read these words from Peter eventually did lose their life. We're going to see that in just a minute. Now what is God's response when they lay into you and they're saying all these things about you and it hurts. It hurt me. I remember way back then some of the things they said when I made the break um, and made new friends and walked away. It was, it was, they said some painful things. Even my own family. Well, Jeffrey, he's always going from one extreme to another. My mother, who now loves the Lord with all of her heart, and she's going to hear this because she listens to me every day. She knows it's true, and she would tell you it's true. She made fun of me. My family made fun of me. Going to Christmas and Thanksgiving uh, gatherings of the family became very painful for me because I was the brunt of the jokes. But see, God has a response for all this. He hears everything that is said. Watch this. They will give an account to God who's ready to judge the living and the dead. See, if they do it to you, they did it to him. You got, you got a big brother in heaven. You have an attorney. You have a father. And even if they martyr you, they're going to give an account. I found interesting, the word account there is logos. It's word. And it means statement or a speech. God is literally going to look at people and say, why'd you say what you said? They're going to give an account. I'm reading the Bible here. Why'd you say what you said? <laughs> Your friends aren't going to be there. Don't give me that stuff. Well, we'll just have a good time in hell. You're not going to know anybody in hell. That is so stupid. And when you give an account to God, there's not going to be your friends sitting around on either side. It says, they will give an account, a speech or a statement for what they've said. Not only about you, but about him. About Jesus. For every contrary word spoken against Jesus, they're going to give an account. And I hear some people on the news these days and I read accounts that people are making. And I, and I look at these despicable, blasphemous, so-called works of art that the Smithsonian Institute even recently put on display. Jesus hanging on a cross with ants crawling out of his mouth and all over his body. Or how about the cross in the jar of urine? And your tax dollars and mine pay for that abomination. You know what? When I read those things and I know what's going on, I think of this. They are going to give an account, a speech. Why'd you say it? This is what you said. It says he's ready to judge them. The living and the dead. They'll, they'll have to answer. So when I get around people like that, I hear things like that, I say, oh, please, please watch your tongue. 
because you just said something that you're going to answer for. And the ones that do these despicable works of art and blaspheme our Savior, oh, what a day of judgment that is going to be. Don't want to see it. Finally, Peter gives us a very mystifying statement. Here it comes, toughest verse in the Bible, in the New Testament. Some have called the most difficult verse, and here it is. For this reason, the gospel was preached. Now, remember what I told you about context. A text without a context is a pretext. If you're going to understand your Bible, you've got to look at what came in front of what you're reading and what follows what you're reading. A text without a context is a pretext. Especially with a verse like this, you've got to know what came in front of it and what follows it. So look at this. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. All right, what's it mean? The context of this verse has to do with God's judgment of those who abuse His people. It's following verse 5. God will judge the quick and the dead, and they'll give a speech or an account for what they've said and done. Now, so that's the context. That's what followed verse six, or preceded verse 6. So he's talking about those who abuse his people, having been convicted by their godly lifestyle. Why do they say the things they said? Because they were convicted by your godly lifestyle. They don't like somebody that reminds them that they're living in sin. The context also includes the fearful persecution of God's saints that was raging even as Peter wrote this letter. Now here's commentator J.B. Phillips, one of the best out there, writes this, quote, The people to whom Peter refers here were dead. That's what he said. But when they were still alive, they had heard the joyful news of the gospel and they believed in Christ. Got it? Because we're going to move on now. Keep that in mind. Now, their lives had been changed. Their transformed lives had activated the malicious dislike of men who were living according to the will of the Gentiles, men in the flesh. There's two kinds of people today, y'all. Those that live according to the will of the Gentiles and those that live according to the will of God. Period. Now, Those who were living according to the will of God convicted those who were living according to the will of the Gentiles, so they said things about them and even killed them, martyred them. The judging referred to here, quote, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, refers to the harsh and hateful judgment done by the wicked people who had persecuted and even martyred the Christians. Fleshly men judged them wrongly, said things about them, and even killed them. As a result, these people were now dead. The Christians. But that was by no means the end of it. On the contrary, they now, though they were killed live according to God in the Spirit. Men in the flesh had done their worst. All they had succeeded in doing, however, was promote them to glory. 
The people they had hated and hounded to death were, in fact, very much alive in heaven. They, quote, according to Peter, live, though they were dead, according to God in the Spirit. What did Jesus say? He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's what he's talking about here. The ones that he mentions that were dead were people that had heard the gospel and believed in Christ, but because of their godly lifestyle, men in the flesh had killed them. Or they had died being persecuted. But now, the men in the flesh who martyred them did them a favor because they were promoted to glory. See, Jesus said, don't you fear those who can, who can kill you, but they can't take your soul. But fear him who can take both your body and soul and cast it into hell. That's what Jesus said. But don't fear those who can kill your body. And that's what happened here in 1 Peter 5, 6. Y'all with me? You're kind of with me. Get the notes and see a lot of this. All right, but now let's look at this. We're, let's summarize. Can we stand together? <clears throat> Since Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, what should we do? Prepare ourselves. Arm ourselves. Read this with me, would you? To deny our selfish wills, desires, and purposes, which is the will of the Gentiles, in order to live for the will of God. Next week we're going to look at since all these things are coming to an end, how shall we then live? Are you all aware that everything's wrapping up? Well, next week we're going to look at that. Let's pray together. Father, I know I have a sanctuary full of people here and those listening by radio who want to live for the will of God. If you do, can you lift your hands to him right now? Say, Lord, I don't want to live for the will of the Gentiles. I want to live for the will of God. Help me, Lord, to come to that place of surrender where I say, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I pray for everyone here, myself included, Lord, that you would keep the enemy from knocking us off this decision point. That we would ever give this high place in God up to live for the will of the Gentiles. No, Lord, life is short, and we have this time to make an impact for God. Help us to live for the will of God. In Jesus' name, let's sing, Joe. Thank you. For you, let's lift it up and worship Him. Thank you.